So as John said, the reading this morning is from uh, the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 12 to 30, and is entitled, Do Everything Without Grumbling. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I I myself will come soon. But I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ." He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. And God bless to us his word. February 1997, um, my first visit to Lansing Tab. It was a Tuesday evening. And the reading that I um, read that evening was this reading kind of interesting. Um, It was uh, also an evening when I spoke a bit about Latvia. Um, It's interesting, those two connections, this passage and Latvia. At the time, we had four elders. Um, One of them was called Claude. The other two had um, names beginning with R-O. So there was um, Ron, Ron, and Roland. One of those elders beginning R-O was kind of um, involved in in that meeting. And um, he dropped my slides um, on the floor. It, it was kind of old, old school, um, no PowerPoint at that stage. He dropped the, um, the slides um, that um, I was using to project. That's kind of, you know, you need to have a kind of really old memory to know that. It was a great introduction 
um, to the church um, as I kind of scrap. Obviously, people saw that I was a man who was, was um, uh, used to being on my knees. Um, as, a, as around here, we were kind of looking to um, find the slides in the right order. You know that slides need to be loaded upside down as well, which um, kind of added to the, the complication. But there we are. Um, it's kind of interesting that here we are again, um, nearly in February uh, 2020, and, and we've, we've come back to this particular passage. So that's, um, that's good. Um, it's good to uh, revisit these important things. Paul says that he wants the Philippian Christians to obey, not only in his presence, but also in his absence. It's interesting, isn't it, how people can deal with situations quite differently when they feel they're being seen and when they're feeling that they're not being seen. Sometimes, you know, we act up a bit, don't we? We, we kind of notice that there are people noticing us. We notice that there's an audience and, and then we are something. And then when we don't have people looking at us, we may well be something else. And Paul says, you know, I want you to not only obey when I'm around, but also in my absence now that I'm in prison. Now, of course, we, we looked last week at um, the fact that Jesus, his ministry was a ministry of obedience. He was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And you see the connection. Um, Jesus was obedient, and if you're a follower of Jesus and you have the mind of the Lord Jesus, you are obedient too. Um, if you're to be Christ-like, well, then you, you obey, and you, you, you seek to obey at, at all times and, and all seasons, whether it's good or bad or indifferent in your life. You seek to do the right thing for Jesus because that's what Jesus' people do. So we've seen the example of Jesus um, last week, and now we see us living according to the example of Jesus. Obey. And this involved, Paul says, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now we said when we looked at our motto text that um, we're confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion the day of Christ. That the language in this letter is, is not individualistic. And we, we don't distinguish in the English between a singular you and a plural you. Um, so we don't notice what's being said. But Paul is saying, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you or among you to willing to do his good pleasure. The way we work out our salvation is in the group in which we live, the church where we live, the community where we live. It's a very public thing. It's not simply an individualistic thing. Now, as individuals, we seek to obey, but the context in which we live as Christians is the community of Christians into which we've been called. You see, there is a danger, isn't there, in thinking about Christianity as an individual pursuit that it's simply a private matter, but Christianity is not a private matter. Christianity is a personal matter, but it's a personal matter that's experienced amongst a group of people. We do not just have a personal link with Jesus that we develop and develop as a Christian. In fact, you cannot develop as a Christian 
on your own. Ideally speaking, we need other people for us to develop in the way that we need to develop. On our own, our opportunity for growth and development will be limited. But as we kind of rub shoulders with others, suddenly we're in the context in which we can give and receive. In fact, how can you give if there is not a recipient? How can Christians be giving outgoing people unless there are those that they can give to? Sometimes people say in the life of the church, well, it seems as though I'm always on the receiving end. I said, well, great, because you're allowing people to give. You know, it's a wonderful contribution to the life of the church to be on the receiving end because it means that people who are giving have got someone to give to. And, of course, things change. Sometimes those who have been on the receiving end become those who are able to give. I remember, I've mentioned it before, the occasion, standing at the church door, a couple going by with some bags they'd been shopping, and they came back when they saw me at the door and they said, a few months ago you helped us from the food bank. We're back on our feet now. Gave me a £10 note and they said, use this to help someone else. We're not necessarily always on the receiving end, but if we are on the receiving end, we do allow people to give. We complete the cycle of service and obedience. Continue, continue. Of course... This idea of working, um, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, um, can kind of seemingly go against the idea that it's all of grace, that um, it's all dependent on him, um, that we, we trust on the work of Christ. This, all, this language of working it out, it just seems to be kind of a little bit contrary to that. But we notice, don't we, that it is God who works in us to will and to do. Every action, every Christian action is an action that has God's involvement, strength, and activity. You take a step and you find that God graciously meets you in that step. You reach out a hand, you offer forgiveness, you render an act of service. And as you step into the place, you find that God is there. I was chatting to someone on the phone um, this week, um, and they were talking to me about their future. Um, we sometimes talk about football as well, but we were talking about his future at this time. And I said, you know, remember that when you're playing football, you step into the space. You don't run after the ball, you step into the space. If you look at the ball, if you're just thinking about the ball only, you'll find that you're in the wrong place. You step into the space. And when you step into the space, you find that you have the pace. And the next step, you have the ball. And maybe you have a goal. I love the story of Corrie ten Boom. Corrie ten Boom, uh, brought up in Amsterdam during the Second World War, family harboring Jews in Amsterdam, um, then being discovered, sent to concentration camp. Uh, sister and her in one concentration camp, her mother and father in another. Her sister died in the camp. Her sister and her experienced great cruelty from one of the, the members of staff in the concentration camp. After the war, Corrie became a, an evangelist. She went around preaching, and she was preaching 
in Germany on one occasion. She'd come from Holland, but she was preaching in Germany. And she saw that the back of the church was this very person who had caused her sister such grief um, before she died in the concentration camp. She knew that um, this person hovering at the back of the church, she'd need to encounter her and speak to her. And as she came to the back of the church, she said, I reached out my hand. And as I reached out my hand, God did something in my heart. I reached out my hand, and God enabled me to forgive. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fill his good purpose. When God calls us to obey him, he says to us, the batteries are included. You know, you haven't got that desperate moment on Christmas Day and you've given a present and you suddenly realize the batteries are not included and there are no shops you can buy them. The batteries are included in the Christian life. When God calls us to do something, when he asks us to work in our salvation, in the fellowship of the church and the community in which we live, He doesn't leave us without resources. He doesn't ask us to make bricks without straw. He gives us the wherewithal by which we can serve. How good it is. Because sometimes people think, well, this Christian thing, it seems impossible. And it does seem impossible. But but there is a God who is able to do the impossible. Nothing is impossible with God. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. I suppose whenever we're called to do something, there's kind of two potential um, responses. The first is, wow, great, I'm looking forward to doing that, I can't wait. Or, you know, Why is it always me? Can't they ask someone else? I don't like doing this. I'd rather do something else. One of the natural responses when people are called to do anything is that they began to grumble and moan about it. Something that we've been seeing in in numbers um, on Sunday evening. So the the people of Israel in in the wilderness grumbling and moaning. In fact, that that reading we had right at the beginning from Deuteronomy um, about God being the unchanging one um, kind of picks up, or or rather Paul picks up the phrase from that passage because there in Deuteronomy 32, 5, um, we read these words, "They they are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Yeah, do things without grumbling or despising, or disputing rather, because, um, because otherwise you're just part of a, of a warped generation, not open and generous towards others, not open and willing before God. And that's very unattractive. We said what we want is a beautiful church, not an ugly church. Grumbling and disputing is, is ugly just not very attractive at all. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
We don't want a, a distorted image in the church. We want to have something that's clear and, and beautiful for God. That you might shine like stars in the universe, holding out the word of life. Um, these are probably words that, that Paul takes from Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, about God's people being like stars in the universe, um, being light in a world of darkness, being life in a world that is dying. Shine like stars in the universe. It's very difficult, isn't it, when we're in a dark place, when we're disorientated, we're not quite sure where we're going, you can't quite see very far in front of us. But to have a light switched on, how valuable that is. Shine like stars in the universe. You live in a dark world. Don't contribute to its darkness. Contribute to its light. Anyone can switch the light off. Are we switching the light on? Are you being lights in the world? As we prayed earlier about where you're going to be tomorrow morning, are you going to be a light in that situation? Are you going to be a star that lights up in the darkness? Now, it's rather nice, isn't it, when people say to us um, when we've done something, you're a real star. But God wants us to be a real star. That's the whole point. He wants us to be a star. Now, of course, they're saying that because maybe they've just had the frustration of being on the phone um, to someone for 20 minutes and getting nowhere, and then suddenly someone seems to understand what they're talking about and sorts it out in a minute. You're a real star. We do live in a frustrating world. We live in a world where sometimes it's not easy for people to find someone to listen to them, find someone to take them seriously. When people do, it is like a star in the darkness. You don't really have to be trying that hard to make a difference. I know that sounds a bit of a cynical thing to say. But it's just so interesting that the level of kindness sometimes, helpfulness, interest, concern for others can be so small that a tiny interest taken in other people can just seem like a glass of water in the desert or a star shining in the sky. Do this, says Paul, and I will be glad. It will make my joy complete. Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I feel, says Paul, as though you know, I'm giving my life. I'm here in prison. I might need to give my life. I might need to die as a martyr. What makes me glad, though, is to see you living for the Lord Jesus Christ, shining like light in the darkness. Now, if we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we are to live like stars in the darkness, we need role models that help us to, to do that. What does it look like? What does it look like in practice to obey God day by day? What does it look like in practice to be a star that stands out and makes a difference in the world? Well, Paul gives two role models, the role model of Timothy and the role model of Epaphroditus. Timothy, well, he's an example of a, of a star shining 
in the darkness. Timothy was one of the group of people who went to Philippi with Paul. So they knew Timothy right from the beginning. He was familiar to them. He had a proven track record. And Paul says here that Timothy has a genuine interest in you. I've got no one like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. He says that Timothy is is like my son. Like my son in terms of being someone that I mentor. Um, You know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father who has served with me in the work of the gospel and hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Now, this idea of Father and son is a reminder that the Christian church is a place of intimacy. In the church, we're not clients. We're not members in the sense of being members of a club. We're members in the sense of being part of a body. There's something intimate about the church. So that Paul can describe someone that he's taken under his wing as a son. Whose faith he has developed. And, of course, in those days, in the first century, fathers often passed on their knowledge of their trade to their son. They passed on their skills, their attitude to work, their attitude to customers. Father and son in the same trade. You often see it over shops. You see it in companies. Brown and sons, or occasionally brown and daughter, passing on something, passing on skills. And when you, when you see the son or the daughter, you see something of the parent, their way of doing things, their attitude, their work ethic being passed on in the family business. For everyone looks at their own interests, but we're called to look for those of Jesus Christ. Everyone looks to their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. One commentator made this observation. One must look after number one, after all. One must look after number one, after all, as long as we remember that number one is your neighbor and not yourself. Timothy is special because he's interested in the welfare of those at Philippi. Have you ever had a conversation where it's all one-sided? Hey, someone has. Well, this might be a conversation where it feels as though it's one-sided too, I suppose. You kind of hear everything about the other person. They ask no questions. You are just a pair of ears conveniently located. Timothy wasn't like that. He was a role model. He took an interest in others. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, another commentator says, that Paul doesn't say Timothy is a wonderful teacher. Timothy is very devout and holy. But Timothy genuinely cares for
for you. In searching for a new pastor, um, it's not necessarily the academic qualifications or the background and experience that are the key things. It is whether this is a man who cares for us out of a love for Jesus Christ. I told you that that was a question I was asked 22 years ago. Do you think that God has given you a love for these people? Well, I suppose 22 years later, the answer ought to be obvious. And it's an important question. He is someone who is interested in you. I think also this section reminds us of how the church actually operates. That the church is a network. It's a local network, but also um, a network which is national and international. There are links. As I said, the first meeting um, that I came and spoke at here, I spoke about Latvia and this passage. And the first place I will be going, the Sunday after my final Sunday here, will be Latvia. Um, and in the last 22 years, there's been coming and going between those two places. People coming here, me going there. We've seen this as a church with Richard and Living Hope. It's been great to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Living Hope recently and seen where Richard and others have gone and to see, see people who've come to us and enriched us, people moving from one place to another to share with the body of Christ. Seen it with our relationship with Mississippi, with teams coming from Mississippi, folks going over to there, Andrew Wilson coming and working with us for two years from that church. People movement, networks of people going from A to B, being available and serving. And, and that's the way the church ought to be. It's, it's, it's not just a little local expression looking at its navel. We're part of a big global family. And there is coming and there is going. And it is remarkable that, um, that Paul is able to say, I'm going to send. I'm going to send Timothy to you. I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. Kind of previously you've been part of the, the church there. I'm going to send them. And, and it reminds us that within the church of the first century, there was a remarkable trust in the leadership of the church. And I want you to hear this because it's a really important thing to hear at this time. Although, obviously, the whole membership is involved in the choice of a new pastor, and that is rightly the case, leaders have been set apart with a particular responsibility to lead and to give direction and guidance. And it's important as a church that we trust the judgment of the leaders. They've been appointed as leaders because we believe they are men of God with spiritual insight and we need to trust that God has given them to us in order to help us in terms of leadership. Now, together we're discerning the mind of Christ, but it is remarkable to see how Paul sends Timothy, he sends Epaphroditus. There is, there is great judgment in leadership, great discernment, and there is great trust in the discernment of leadership in the first century church, and it's worth bearing in mind. 
Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was one of them. Um, I think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. He longs to be with you. He's been sick. He's almost died, but God had mercy upon him, and I'm sending him to you. Welcome him. Welcome him. Someone has said that when Paul says, welcome Epaphroditus, what he's saying is, just hang those welcome banners a little higher. Welcome him. When a new pastor comes here, they will see the, the verse on the door, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. That's a lovely welcome, isn't it? When he comes, welcome him. It's good that you are here. Welcome him. Welcome him because he's made great risks for you. Relational generosity is a catalyst for God's will. Jesus works through people. And I think that's what we see here in Philippians 2. We see wonderful relational generosity. People willing to give, people willing to go, people willing to receive. Where there is this relational generosity, well then, um, a community of God's people operates in a, in a way that is more relaxed and yielding and healthy. Where there is a lack of relational generosity, things just become a little bit harder in relational terms. He risked his life for you, says Paul. He almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. We were joking earlier about someone's visit to a wonderful restaurant. And they were talking about the rhubarb crumble. Now, sorry, I set you up in this. And I said, probably it was one of those desserts that was to die for. And they smiled. What are you willing to die for? A rhubarb crumble? Or for your brothers and sisters? What are you willing to take a risk concerning? We live in an age where people do not, by and large, take an interest in others, but they take an interest in themselves. Take a risk to walk across the room to talk to someone who needs to know about Jesus. Take a risk to go and knock on someone's door in the church and encourage them. Drop them a line. Say that you're praying for them. Take a risk. Take an interest. As God, by his grace in Jesus, has taken an interest in us.